As banking institutions base more of their business on customer data, the value of that data rises and it becomes more valuable to steal. This week's podcast guest is Jim Van Dyke, SVP for Innovation at Sontic, and a leading voice on data breaches and how to protect customers from their impacts. Actionable insights can help power smart decisions. Each week, the BAI Banking Strategies podcast focuses on important issues facing financial services leaders, as well as the emerging trends that are rapidly reshaping the financial industry. I'm Terry Badger, your host and the managing editor at BAI. Pull up a chair and join us. Data breaches in the U.S. last year were down from their 2017 peak, but there were still more than 1,000 of them, and they exposed upwards of 150 million records. With us to talk about data breaches and their impact on banking institutions and banking customers is one of the leading experts in the space. Jim Van Dyke co-founded the firm Breach Clarity, which is now part of the identity security firm Sontic. Jim is also part of Sontic as SVP for Innovation. Jim, thanks for joining us on the Banking Strategies podcast. Thanks, Terry. It's always good to be talking with BAI. Jim, you've been around the identity protection space for a while now. First as founder and head of Javelin Strategy and Research, later as founder and head of Breach Clarity. Earlier this year, Breach Clarity was bought out by Sontic. So can you tell us a bit about how Breach Clarity, what was Breach Clarity, how it fits into Sontic? Well, if you think about classic identity protection, you know, there are features like credit monitoring, password protection, restoration. Well, there's certainly a difference in the quality of various services like that. You know, those services have been around for a while. And what has never existed before and is a perfect complement to these other services that I just mentioned is the ability to give every identity holder a personal diagnosis of their risk. So think of one as being like all the actions that maybe a hospital can take if you're suffering from some medical condition and maybe your left wrist is fractured or maybe you've come down with COVID or something like that, right? Well, you wouldn't want everyone to prioritize the same thing. That would make no sense. But up until now, that's what the identity protection industry has mostly had to do. They've been able to differentiate on quality, but not on priorities at an individualized basis. So given that we do the individual risk projection and proffering of action steps, And what Sontic does is actually provide the tools, right, or fulfill the prescription, if you will. Well, those two make natural counterparts, tell people what to do and help them do it, and then give them the tools that get it done. So that's how our two products work together in a way that really no one else is doing. Let's talk in general about the latest trends regarding identity fraud. I'm guessing that there are at least as many scams out there as ever, and that the bad guys are in various ways getting their hands on vast amounts of sensitive data. What can you share about the current identity fraud risk environment and how banking customers should be thinking about their risk exposure? So what people often don't realize is that is the degree to which financial institutions carry the great majority of the load in terms of losses, you know, direct fraud write-offs, service costs, and broken relationships that result from identity theft and fraud. We always have, in good times and bad, crimes like tax identity theft, medical identity fraud, unemployment fraud, and so forth. 
what we saw through the pandemic was a rise and just a, a radical kind of hastening of the, the change. There were a lot of turbulence around government frauds like unemployment and PPP loans, of course, was another one. And we always see this whenever there's a, a big crisis, whether it's a typhoon or earthquake or you know global significance, we always see that there's a shift in identity crimes, you know, criminals taking advantage of the chaos. But what is also consistent is that bankers still carry the bulk of the load of all identity crimes. So that's why we're focused on this personal diagnosis of risk and the provisioning of the action steps. And, you know, the, the breaches we will always have with us, we're not necessarily seeing an increase in breaches. What we're seeing is a shift in how that breach data is used in the commission of different types of fraud and different types of scams, which creates so much confusion for both banks and the customers they serve. From the other side, Jim, in trying to think about what might be front of mind for financial institutions, what kinds of questions are you getting now from your banking clients and prospects that might give us some idea of what their big concerns are right now? You know what bankers are asking us about a lot is how do they maintain a profitable customer relationship? The nature of the customer relationships shift and some revenue sources are drying up and banks say they want NII, non-interest income sources, and especially in what has been a low interest rate environment. So bankers are really struggling with you know, all the customers moving to digital, but they don't get to have the, the traditional close relationship of an up and close and personal banker to be able to offer products that maybe the consumer, or even small business customer is interested in. So what we talk to a lot of bankers about is how they can protect and engage the customer, the identity holder, from the point of onboarding and acquisition. You mentioned that there's not necessarily more data breaches, but a change in how that breach data is being used. We've heard about COVID creating novel opportunities for scammers of all stripes, including with ID fraud. What new modes of attack are you seeing either as a direct result of the pandemic or otherwise that could be new, that could be new wrinkles on old scams, that sort of thing? There are a few significant shifts there, Terry. One is just starting with the online account opening process. I, I have to mention that because during the pandemic, there were so many customers that wouldn't let go of the branch. And then now all of a sudden, finally, they became persuaded or they became forced to start a digital relationship. So these digital holdouts needed to apply for an online relationship, maybe through their current provider, maybe they needed to select a new provider. And in that, whenever you see this changing volume of transactions of any type, it's just easier for criminals to hide within the increased volume of legitimate transactions. So there was crime going on there, an online account opening. And in existing account relationships, with more people shopping online, that created more opportunity Within um, all the government fraud of unemployment and PPP loans, there were different kinds of fraud. Some of that was identity fraud. Some of it wasn't, of course. It's interesting, the shift around synthetic, which actually is not new. Synthetic identity fraud always involves real people's identities. They're just mixed up. You know, it might be your address and my phone number and your social and my driver's license combined possibly with some bogus records in there. So we're seeing a little bit of shift with synthetic fraud as well. A lot of fraud schemes are being carried out by organized crime groups, and many of those groups are being based overseas. 
Just how organized are these groups and how are they evolving and expanding as more banking goes digital and thus the opportunity set grows? I always like to point out that any successful identity crime is always at least a two crime crime. Somebody has to get their hands on the data, sometimes called stealing the data that they have no business accessing, and then the data is misused. Might be more than that, but there are always two big categories. And in the bigger criminal attacks, it, these are organized groups. You know, one doing a, a massive hacking effort, like we saw in some of the biggest hacks, like you know, Equifax and, and Yahoo and Anthem and so forth. Those are often big groups, sometimes affiliated with governments that don't want to see the U.S. win. And then there are other groups that are involved in the identity crimes, whether it's new account establishment, fraudulent takeover of existing accounts. And again, financial services always bears the brunt. So there's this handoff, you know, it might be two different departments, if you will, within the same criminal gang, or the data might just be traded from one to the other. And this data, this stolen data, this exposed or breached data has a fairly long shelf life as well, as long as it's not card data, it has an automatic expiration date. So these groups are fairly organized. But again, it's important to realize that the majority of every identity holder's data has definitely not been exposed. And so we have to find out what data has been exposed in order to strike a win for the honest players. Find out what data has been exposed and what kind of risk profile that creates for for that unique identity holder and give them a unique prescription uh, for action. That's how we combat this one, two, expose the data, misuse the data, attack plan of organized criminals. How would you say, Jim, that uh, banks and other financial services providers are doing in handling that the upswing in identity fraud activity that we've been talking about, particularly in the context of trying to strike that balance between tight data security and customer ease of use? And do you think they are striking the right balance in this fraud versus friction trade-off? You want friction in certain cases. If it's a criminal that's posing as your identity holder, of course, you want all the friction in the world. You just don't want to shut down legitimate transactions. Where we see some bright spots are a few financial institutions beginning to do something that that I've espoused for a while, which is treat identity security advice as a financial health issue. And one institution that's really doing a good job with this is Bank of America, actually. Looking on their website the other day, and right within their better money habits section of their website, I was expecting to find lots of real cool widgets, gamification, free credit monitoring, all kinds of things like that. And I did. They've got some great tools there, but they also have everything related to protecting their finances, not just growing their finances. And that's one of the ways of the future that banks can partner with their identity holder. Just make all advice and all tools around protecting and growing your financial condition, put it all in one place, and use it as an opportunity to fulfill these dire needs that the identity holder feels to understand how they should protect themselves, what action they should take. When it comes to trying to deal with identity fraud, or really any kind of fraud or scams, do banks tend to view themselves as standalone entities, as you know, individual silos, if you will? You say that the banks themselves are not usually breached in these cases, but they're all facing the same risks from the same criminal bans, right? So how much, if any, effort is there toward a mutual protection society, you know, a safety and numbers sort of thing? Yeah, it's very interesting to me that when uh, 
having been a person that for decades has gone to events or private gatherings of bankers, both from the digital side, you know, which is account holder facing versus fraud mitigation, you know, enterprise focused things that, that the consumer themselves never see a part of, right? Like behind the scenes authentication versus two-factor authentication the consumer might use, for instance. And what I see is that for the fraud mitigation events or gatherings or online data sharing rooms, bankers tend to be very cooperative in those forums. And so they work in, in a partnership nature. But in the digital area, even when efforts are involving customer protection or engaging with a customer to have a more protected customer, the bankers don't tend to work together in those areas. So it depends. Behind the scenes, yeah, they work great together. Customer facing, the bankers are much more competitive. How legitimate is that competitive issue in terms of the customer facing part? I would think that that would be, from the customer standpoint, that would be the kind of thing where you would want to have an industry-wide approach since it's an industry-wide problem. Bankers have some room to grow, some significant room to improve in standardizing their customer-facing methods for assessing fraud risk, again, on an individualized basis. Because we all have an individualized fraud pattern, we just don't know what it is, and our banker generally doesn't know what it is. So bankers have some room to grow in terms of adopting some standardized methods. This is where AI can be used for so much more than... So there's annoying chatbots that if we're honest, we'd say most of us really don't like dealing with chatbots, but that's what we hear about AI used all the time. Why not use AI for something else? We all would like to see, I think, regulators standardize breach notification laws in all 50 states so bankers don't have to go through such a labyrinth set of requirements. Bankers should do the same thing, that is standardize the way they assess problems and communicate to customers in terms of looking at fraud as being within a finite number of categories and then assessing the customer's risk within those categories and then prescribing all possible action steps that keep that identity holder safe and simplifying the language. That's where bankers have some room to grow. We established at the start of our conversation that you've been an influential player in this space for a number of years and in a variety of settings as well. But to continue to be effective as an innovation guy, you've got to keep your eyes and your mind open to new ideas, new ways of thinking that you can learn from. So with that as a setup, what are some of the big things that you've learned lately that bankers might benefit from knowing? The big opportunity that, uh, sorry to repeat myself here, but it's it's an important opportunity, so I'll do it, is um, bankers should move the topic and the tools related to Identity protection should move it all under financial health. In the last five to seven, maybe 10 years, we've seen this big increase in focus in the executive suite on financial health, and that's a wonderful thing. But where we created another silo, and that's a bad thing, not treating identity safety as a part of financial health. And bankers have started to break down the silos around things like types of payments, or mobile versus you know, fixed location computing, where you start to use responsive design to, to give the customer a consistent interface. Well, this identity safety you know, or, or financial safety versus financial health, that's just another silo. It looks just as artificial to the end user. And when you look at the cost of identity fraud that banks pay on an annual basis in the US, 
depending on what part of business you're measuring, it's about 40 to $50 billion a year in the U.S. There is just so much of a payoff and customers will be very grateful to see bankers going into that area as well. Thinking more broadly, more holistically about wellness in a financial sense, that could really pay off in terms of strengthening that customer relationship, which, as we all know, is a top priority these days for banks and credit unions. So Jim Van Dyke, SVP for Innovation at Sontic, thanks again for being with us on the Banking Strategies podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Terry. Appreciate it. A few takeaways from our conversation with Jim Van Dyke from Sontic. First, Jim says whenever major events disrupt normal day-to-day routines, there's a corresponding shift in the way fraudsters try to take advantage of the chaos to commit identity-related crimes. The pandemic has presented criminal groups with new opportunities to exploit using data obtained in breaches. While banks are not typically a source of breaches, they tend to feel the financial impact most strongly. In addition, given that breaches affect customers or members at the individual level, He says banks and credit unions should think about identity protection as part of a customer's financial wellness. In his view, there is still too much siloing that can be detrimental. With identity fraud costing banks tens of billions of dollars a year, a broader perspective on what constitutes financial health may be beneficial. And finally, as part of encouraging wellness, financial services providers can better gauge fraud risk for individual customers. Jim suggests that artificial intelligence can be put to work on this front. AI can help standardize how banks identify and categorize risk factors, how they assess a given customer's exposure to each risk factor, and then how they communicate and work with customers to protect them from these threats. Thank you for listening to the BAI Banking Strategies Podcast. I'm Terry Badger, Managing Editor at BAI. Please join us again next week for another conversation on an important topic for the financial services industry.